This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The near-death experience has been uh, part of public knowledge, I think, for at least 30 years. 30 years ago, Raymond Moody wrote his book, Life After Life, and since then, there's been some scientific knowledge to show that the near-death experience is actually scientifically provable. So today, our guest is Nadia McCaffrey, and Nadia has had several near-death experiences, and she is the Bay Area facilitator for the International uh, Association for Near-Death Studies. Nadia, thank you so much for being on. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, ma'am. Now, Nadia, you had uh, a near-death experience when you were relatively young. So tell us about what your life was like before the experience, and then what happened? Well, my life, you know, before the, the near-death uh, happened to me was the normal life of a young uh, girl. I was seven years old. so. Uh, and you were living in France? Yeah, I was living in France with my grandparents uh, while I was uh, going to school at the um, Catholic boarding school at four. I, was, I started boarding school at mm -hmm. four until I turned 18. Anyway, the point is that uh, that summer, that was July 7, uh, 1952, um, I was home with my grandparents and I love flowers. I always have and I was collecting uh, flowers that day for my grandmother. So uh, I decided to uh, collect some um, red pea, sweet pea, mm -hmm. which you know are gorgeous in color. And um, I had to run down the meadow and uh, there was like a, a fall uh, and a wall, a retaining wall probably. And then there was a field of wheat a little bit farther off. This wheat was actually much taller than I was, was towering over my head. But I wanted the sweet pea, so I just kind of ran toward the, the flowers. In the process of doing that, I disturbed an asp. An asp? Yes. Okay. An asp is a poisonous snake, very poisonous really. An adult will survive probably 20 minutes. And um, a child, you know, doesn't have much of a chance. Anyway, um, I froze, and uh, I saw the the, the viper uh, just staring at me, and I know immediately uh, what was uh, going to happen or what already had happened. And then I felt this huge pain on my left ankle. I still have the scar where um, the snake uh, bit me. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I started to scream. The snake just wandered away. Um, and I started to scream as loud as I could, and the the whole village heard it was in country. Um, the only thing that I thought of doing at the time was to run up uphill to where the house 
to find my grandmother. But everybody That probably caused the venom to exactly. get through your system even more. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly what happened. Uh, by the time I got uh, halfway up the hill, it had reached my heart, so I just collapsed. And then what happened? My grandmother was running down hill and picked me up and uh, run a little farther uh, toward the house and then put me down again. And then she took uh, a, a small pocket knife that he had, she had in her apron and tried to cut where the, the bite happened, mm -hmm. was uh, done, uh, to, in order to get some venom out. And then she um, wanted to suck it out and she put a, a garret on my leg. And I just kind of lost consciousness. So she ran to the house and tried to gather my grandparent, my grandfather, and uh, called for help. I started to, I came to, I started to vomit. I was terribly ill, and I lost consciousness. Um, I woke up. I don't know how long after this in uh, my grandparents' bed, and. Um, Two doctors were over me, trying to figure out if they were going to give me a shot or not in the abdomen, uh, because it had been too long. It, the shot wouldn't work. So they decided to do it anyway. And then I went into a coma. I stayed in a coma for 10 days. Nobody thought I was coming out of the coma. Uh, my leg, in the meantime, had double or triple the size, mm -hmm. you know, and it was uh, all kinds of strange color, from brown to gray. Um, when uh, I was in this coma, I entered this amazingly peaceful dimension where um, I was out of my body and I um, saw this beam of light that um, was sort of floating in the air. And she was amazingly beautiful and powerful. Um, she was everything that you want or that you imagine. Or that you this represented love. This being was everything there is. Um, there is nothing that you can compare it to. There are no words really to explain what it felt like. This is a space where you do not want to leave, you want to stay there. This is what we all strive to mm -hmm. get at or to. Question, how did you know you were out of your body? Uh, because uh, I could see my body from above, and that's where I realized the color of my leg, uh, which was uh, horrible. And I didn't even recognize myself. When you were seeing this, did you think it was strange? No. Mm -hmm. No. I just um, took a look, and I was much more interested by what was happening. So you were kind of detached from your body? No, completely. Completely. Oh. And then what happened? Well, was once I was in this space, then she um, smiled at me, and she opened her arms. And uh, there was no word exchanged, but she let me know that she wanted me to come very close. And I could feel this love, and I could feel this enormous well-being. And she gave me a message that uh, came back two or three times. What was the message? The message basically was to tell me that my life would be about helping people. 
-hmm. that I was here. My mission was to help people. Right. But she also told me about Patrick's death. Patrick is? My son that was killed at war in 2004. He was killed in Iraq? He was killed in Iraq at war, yes. And she uh, basically told me, in metaphor, uh, that this was going to happen. Um, she also reassured me totally and said, don't worry, uh, nothing is going to happen to you. You will be here for what I whatever you have to do in, uh, in your life. Right. I have a question mission. about this lady. Yes. Because you were brought up in a Catholic school, um, did this, be this lady of light at all remind you of uh, Mary? Her introduction to me was, je suis ta petite maman du ciel. Which is? Which means, I am your little mother of the sky. And since I was seven years old, then of course I relate to that. And to me, she represented a mother figure of Mary. Mm -hmm. So you came out of this experience, and how were you changed? Well, being in this space, uh, again, reaches the limit that are not reachable. In other words, there is something so much more than what we know. This is a school. This is not the reality of things. This the is life we're living now is yes, a school? Yes. It's, um, what is the purpose of this school? Well, we, are, we live forever. You know, this was shown to me. We, we don't die. Our soul will go on living many lives. And the more lives we will live, the more graduation we will receive. Mm -hmm. So either we pass or don't. It's we have free will. So whatever we decide to do is wha what we learn. You right. know. And I think you've had other near-death experiences. Yes. Uh, tell us about the final one that you had. Um, I had one. I had the final one. Mm -hmm. This was not too long ago. It was in the 90s. Mm -hmm. It was uh, just 1999. And um, I was at the time working with hospice and working with people who are terminally ill. Um, so I was sitting at the bedside of a lady who was herself in a coma. I was just holding her hand and um, sitting there with her, waiting for my shift um, to end. Um, suddenly, I felt ill. I felt like something was coming over me. And suddenly, I was in the light. I was glowing. I was sitting in the green chair. The S chair was green. So you were conscious and you were fairly well, but you were in the light? Yes, but I felt sick, mm -hmm. like a fever was coming on. And I started to, to drip, actually, to, to be soaked. Mm -hmm. My clothes were soaked. My hair, uh, again, water was dripping from my face. And I just did this. And I, I realized my hair was glowing. Your hair was glowing? Yeah. I was in the light, but not the chair, just me. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, okay, here we go. So were you in the same place that you were with the lady years before? No. No. No, I never saw her again. Um, this was a different color light. This light was not white. It was golden. And uh, the feeling was the same. It came from the same place. But I also was shown a life review of 
not me, but the earth. And the life review was from the past and two future. And two futures? Yes. Two possible futures? Yes. Okay, talk to us a bit about that. Well, um, we had the choice to engage in one future. Obviously, we took the other side, which brought us uh, with the war, uh, the pain, the suffering, and uh, everything that I was shown. Uh, Pictures were flashing very fast, and that's where I could see image of the war. I saw Iraq. Mm -hmm. I saw a picture of a red sky, and I was just coming to a different country, another place. It was another place altogether. And this is uh, where the this conflict was happening. The details were great. Mm -hmm. uh, I also was shown a center, and I was responsible for the idea of the center. And I was also shown... What kind of a center? Something similar in what I'm trying to do today, mm -hmm. but at the time I had no idea for, the for whom the center would be. Yeah. So that people will know what you're doing today, you're doing what? I'm uh, trying to create a center across the country for veterans who are returning from war, centers where they will be uh, readapted to the earth, uh, to, when, again, I have to re-explain this, when somebody leaves and is deployed to war, this individual will leave as one person, will return as another person. The people who have left him in the first place will not recognize the same individual. It's another person altogether that has, has come home. So the soldier that returns from war is not the same person as the soldier no. who's left? No. And, and your son, Patrick, uh, I think joined uh, the National Guard? He joined the National Guard. After 9-11? Uh, yes. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And then uh, was deployed to Iraq. He didn't thought he would, but he was. He um, was actually the first National Guard to be killed in combat since uh, Korea from his unit. He um, was shot eight times. Very violent death, and I know pretty much how the whole thing was unfolding around his death. But some of the pictures and images that were shown also had something to do with his death. Mm -hmm. I think, um, uh, af for one thing, for the audience who doesn't know, um, uh, there was a ban on. Um, uh, the press being at the return of a coffin of a, of a soldier from Afghanistan or Iraq, and Nadia was the first parent uh, to invite the press to the arrival of your son's coffin, and that uh, created quite a, quite a bit of uh, press. And now that you're going all around the country starting Veterans Village, that has also aroused um, a lot of interest in people. And you also went back to Jordan to interview mothers who also lost their sons in the war? Yes. And something happened to you when you were there. Um, tell us about that. Well, um, after Patrick was killed, I wanted to immediately go back to Iraq and see where he was killed. That was one of the first things that I wanted to do. But I also wanted to meet with Iraqi mothers mm -hmm. who, like me, had lost a son at war or sometimes the whole family. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to hear their story 
and uh, basically trying to make some sense into what a war is, what it, you know, the, 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 the death that comes to uh, people like me, my family, uh, and 4,000 others in this country. Um, when I was there, I just, when I just arrived in Jordan, um, just stepping out of the plane, through the hublot, thr through the window of the plane, I could see the sky was very red, and it's a color that we don't get here. I mean, we have beautiful skies, but this kind of a red color I, I haven't seen before. And here it was. This is what I was shown in an This experience. was one of the futures you were shown? This is one of the pictures that I saw. And when I, I had this pressure on my chest, I could hardly breathe, I could move. I started to cry in the plane. Mm -hmm. And people looked at, I couldn't tell, you know, what was happening. So somebody else uh, helped me, uh, you know, get up and uh, move out of the plane. And when I step out in this red sky and gray land, everything is gray mm -hmm. from powder, um, dust, I know where I was. I know I w this is what I was shown, and this is not the end of it. So this is one of the futures you were shown? Yes. Do you think that the purpose of your life now is to try and bring things over to the other future you were shown, which was more peaceful? We chose uh, a direction, obviously, by going to war, but uh, it's a matter of consciousness. We still need, we can't repair what happened, you know, nobody's going to bring my son back. Nobody's going to bring the Iraqi uh, civilian who have been killed without being involved in a war. But we still can change and elevate our consciousness. All of us can be part of this process, mm -hmm. and we have to do it. Right. Now, you're a facilitator uh, for IANS, International Association for Near-Death Studies. When you work with people who've had near-death experiences, um, what is that like? It's very challenging. Um, it's a little bit like working with veterans, really. <laughs> so I'm serious. Somewhat like returning from with yes. veterans, returning combat, from combat? Yes, uh -huh. Do you think that people who've had a near-death experience are also undergoing some kind of yes. disconnect with reality? Yeah, I wouldn't call it PTSD, but it's <laughs> one form of, of trauma. Mm -hmm. And uh, after you have had a near-death experience, uh, you realize that this world where we are now, you and me, um, is not what they have been introduced briefly to. So, in other words, you have to readapt to reality. And, and what is that like, readapting to reality after you've experienced, as you would put it, a greater reality? Well, me, I met quite a few people who have tried to commit suicide. Why would they do that? Because they can't uh, reintegrate. Many people have been addicted to um, some drugs, you know, different things. Some on, are on medication for the rest of their lives. Do some people's lives improve radically? Yes, and then you have the other, the other side where you have people where the near-death experience was a positive a, and a wonderful experience, which motivated to uh, promote uh, a mission in someone's life. Mm -hmm. We all have a mission, I believe, and some people will ignore it and never want to tackle and get there and do whatever they are here to do. Right. But um, I decided to do this. Many people like me have also decided to do this. 
and it's salvation. Um, I would like to, we're more than halfway through the show, but I would like to just talk about something. Um, in 2001, um, an article appeared in, in Lancet magazine, a, a medical journal, and a researcher, Pim Van Lommel, uh, published his findings about near-death experiences in the Lancet. It was a 13-year study of near-death experiences, which was uh, done in 10 different Dutch hospitals. And to make a long story short, out of 344 people who flatlined from cardiac arrest and were resuscitated, 18% um, had some memory of their period of so-called unconsciousness. Mm -hmm. And 12%, that's one out of eight, had a full-blown near-death experience. And that included uh, being out of the body, moving through a tunnel, communication with light, observing celestial landscapes, meeting deceased uh, persons or relatives, and a life review. And two years later, they were um, interviewed. And what was discovered was the people who had the near-death experience, one, they became more em empathic for other people. They were more accepting of others. They lost their fear of death. And there was more of an appreciation for the simple things of life. So I think you can certainly see that in yourself. Oh, it's totally true. I'm not, certainly not afraid of dying. I mean... You're not afraid of anything. No, basically <laughs> I'm not. I think uh, you've come t through a lot of flack, people... Uh, a lot of opposition, and you've just barreled through and, and followed through well, with your intention. what are they going to do? I mean, you know, it, it's not going to scare me. So if I need to do something to help out someone else, I'm not going to stop. Right. Can you also, are you also em empathic, empathetic about their ignorance? Of course. That's w one of the reasons why I wanted to go to, uh, to Iraq. I wanted to try to understand mm -hmm. and capture uh, the essence of people there and, and, and how people, you know, on both sides. Yeah. What is life like when you lose your fear of death? Well, like you just said, you're not afraid of anything. You basically can do anything you like. If you are not afraid of death, then you live better. Mm -hmm. You live without fear. You, everything that you want to do or that you want to accomplish, what is going to stop it? Right. I have kind of a technical question. Um, the near-death experience shows us that consciousness continues when uh, everything is flatlined. Mm -hmm. uh, that tells me that consciousness can continue without the use of the brain. That perhaps the brain is just uh, kind of a receiving mechanism, much like a TV, a radio, or a cell phone. And in quantum physics, uh, people are discovering that um, you know, our minds are connected. There's just one mind of which we're all a part. Uh, consciousness is non-local. Do you have any feeling for this? Yes, I think it's not just that I have a feeling, but I know. Again, once this life has stopped, we are still. We exist. Our soul exists. Our consciousness is there. There mm -hmm. is love. There is feelings. You can see people. You can mm -hmm. feel. You know. You have a knowledge right. that you didn't have before. So what is life like when uh, you have had direct experience of this and you're in a world that is not? Well, <laughs> it's uh, frustrating. 
-huh. It's uh, but you get used to it, you know. You there is something that you learn to do before anything else. It's forgiveness. Uh, and uh, I learn it. I learn how to forgive. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm talking about like the war. I'm talking like about things that really hurt me to the through the core. Um, I have forgiven. If I want to know everything about my son's death and go to Iraq when the trial will happen finally, mm -hmm. it's not for revenge. It has nothing to do with revenge. I want to be there because hopefully I want to see the person who has shot my son and ask him why. I like to understand. Does forgiveness also apply for yourself? Um, after you've been shown a vision of, I imagine you would call it perfect love, um, are you also shown your own shortcomings? I'm not so good with myself. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> well, I don't forgive myself easily. Uh -huh. Isn't that part of the process? I know, and I, I'm working on it. Right. But your goal is still to help others. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It always will be. And to do that, um, uh, do you feel you must feel some ego uh, impinging on what you do? Some some ego that you kind of have to work with, and and, and moving in, into a, a direction of love. Do you have ego issues? You know, I learn how to step on it. How? Uh, when a situation uh, come to me uh, where. Uh, I say, well, you can't just accept this like this. I say, yes, you can. And just work with it. Mm -hmm. And unexpe unexpectedly to people, I will. So it's a constant uh, learning. And but it's uh, also about consciousness. Right. You know, the implications for um, uh, the near-death experience being a fact, for consciousness not being dependent on the brain, are huge. They're enormous. Science really hasn't come to terms with this yet. No. Even though there are uh, scientific studies here and there, you know, people apparently leave their bodies. They're able to report what's going on in other rooms. I think even uh, there are studies to the effect that people who've been blind since birth can actually see during the near-death experience. Yes, we have a good example. Right. Um, I forgot. So know. the implications of this are are tremendous. Mm -hmm. Yes. Do you feel like you're on the the cutting edge of something? Definitely. I don't know if I'll live long enough for uh. to see the answer of that, but yes, there is a lot of things to be discovered. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, science, uh, they give two ideas. One, it's something called anoxia, lack of, lack of oxygen to the brain. That's kind of been discounted because mm -hmm. um, uh, people who don't have the experience uh, have, don't see the light, but it's kind of mixed up. And then there's a psychological explanation that uh, because people fear death, then uh, there's a psychological mechanism for bringing it on. Um, yet the people who've had a cardiac arrest don't have the time f for fear to even kick in. So that can't quite work. Yeah. It's interesting. I see we have just a minute left. This has kind of crept up on us suddenly. But Nadia, you're an example of a person who um, has a vision and who has acted on it for the benefit of others. Uh, what final words do you have to tell us about your experience and how this has helped you and how you hope to help the world? Well, um, it's not my choice, <laughs> okay? I've been clearly told you have work to do 
and uh -huh. really it's up to me to decide if I want to do it or not, but I decided to do it. So I'm in the middle of it. Uh, hopefully I will end it, I will finish it, but uh, it's not about me. It's I am sort of a vessel, you know, bringing something that I'm supposed to bring uh, would come from a very different place. Um, my heart stopped when I had my second near-death experience. My heart stopped for I don't know how many minutes, but it did. Mm -hmm. So that's where I had the experience of the tunnel. And that's where I understood very clearly that the choices are mine to make. Right. And I have definitely, nothing's going to stop me on doing what I want to do right. and what I want to accomplish. My goal is really to leave after me um, a change, a huge change for the veteran. Because since my grandfather, who fought two war, um, there was nothing really made as a difference, to make mm -hmm. a difference for them. Right. And uh, hopefully with all of this, my son included, you know, he's the... The catalyst for this. The catalyst, really, right. yeah. Now, I think our time is about up. So look, once again, you're an inspiration. Uh, you've had a vision, and you've been given the choice, I can act on it, or I won't. You've acted on it. You've made a huge difference in the world. I don't know if I have yet. You have. You're all over the news, for one thing. I will. And anyone who comes into contact with you, I think, senses this sense of fearlessness and this sense of intention on your part. And that is really admirable, and uh, you're to be commended for that. You're to be admired for that. Mm, no. You are. <laughs> and you're out, we're out of time. Vision is important in life. Do you have a vision? Is there something you feel that's important to your life that you want to do? You're given the choice to do it or not. What are you going to do? The choice is yours. Nadia, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me.